Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Today we are continuing our series on 2 Samuel by going to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, last week we looked at the last chapter of 1 Samuel chapter uh, of 1 Samuel. Uh, and, and what we saw throughout the book of 1 Samuel, if you remember, is that Israel was looking for a, quote, king like the nations. Uh, they were rejecting God as their king and seeking a God like the nations. And so God gives them a king like the nations. And that king's name is Saul. Saul is tall and handsome. Uh, but also self-consumed and rebellious against the commands of the Lord. He is a king like the nations. As a result, uh, the Lord tells Saul, Israel's first king, that he will rip away the kingdom from Saul and give it to a man after his own heart. This man after his own heart is a man named David. David is wildly successful underneath King Saul as a military leader. People sing his praises and King Saul gets extremely jealous of David. And so Saul hunts David for seven years seeking to kill him. Last week, uh, again in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, we read the end of King Saul's reign. Uh, he was surrounded by the Philistines on Mount Geboa. He was mortally wounded in battle. And then in order to keep the Philistines from torturing him, we are told that Saul falls on his own sword to take his life. Now, while this battle is going on, something interesting is happening in the life of David. I have a map up here to walk you through to give you the setting of the passage. David is hiding out from Saul in the Philistine area in the region of Ziklag. He's actually given that city to make his home. Uh, he has 500 men with him and their families, their wives, their children. And so they make a home here in Ziklag. Because of being in the Philistine territory, David helps out the Philistines in battle. Uh, David and his, and his crew actually go up uh, here to Aphek. Uh, to join the Philistines who are about to battle against Israel. I don't think David knows they're about to battle against Israel. By the grace of God, the commander of the military says, why are these Hebrews, these Israelites joining us in battle? We can't trust them. And he sends them home. And so David and his, and his army comes all the way back to Ziklag. When they get back to Ziklag, they find out that the Amalekites, who are the arch enemies of the Israelites, uh, have, have, have raided uh, their homes. They have burned their homes to the ground. Uh, they have taken their women, uh, their, their wives and their daughters and their plunder and, and carried it off into the wilderness. Uh, the Amalekites, and this is going to come up again, the Amalekites are a thorn in Israel's flesh. Uh, they were a very wicked people. They were kind of like land pirates. I know we romanticize pirates now, but pirates uh, were very awful people and these were no exception. As a matter of fact, when Israel came up out of Egypt, they had no weapons and the Amalekites attacked the Israelites from the back to kill their women, their children, and those who were lame and disabled 
in order to plunder them. This is how wicked they were. So to put it in today's context, imagine if there was a group of people in Green Bay who instead of working a job decided that when the husbands went off to work, they would come and they would attack people's home, steal their wives and children and burn their home to the ground. That's who the Malachites were. And so David goes after the Malachites and he sees that they have all of their spoils. And so he attacks them and he kills a lot of them and they bring back their women and their children and their spoils. Now, something interesting about the Malachites is that King Saul was commanded by God to wipe them out because they were such a wicked people. But King Saul, because of his own rebellion, because of his own greed, because of his own, uh, his own cowardice, refused to do that. And now we will see they come back to get David again, and they will even come back to get David. And so that is the setting of today's passage. And so if you would please open up to 2 Samuel chapter 1. It is page 254 in the Red Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 1. And this takes place three days after David comes back from uh, from battling the Amalekites, when he comes back to Ziklag, and they are starting to rebuild their homes there. Okay, so 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, this is a long passage. Uh, we're only going to start with the first four verses. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. If this is your first time here, keep your Bible open. The whole sermon will go back to it time and time again. 2 Samuel, verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he, had came, when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. Let's pray. Lord, uh, as we consider this very heavy chapter this week, this, this chapter of mourning and grieving, uh, God, may we, may we know how to respond when those in our life pass away, when those whom we love, who we're acquainted with, who, who our friends die, God, show us how, what is a proper response from us who love you and care for you and are your children. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A little over two weeks ago, Eliza Fletcher, a 34-year-old kindergarten teacher, woke up early to go for her morning jog in Memphis, Tennessee. Around 4.20 a.m., a black SUV pulled up alongside of her and shoved her into the SUV. And as many of you know, if you've been watching the news, Eliza was never seen alive again. Eliza left behind a husband, Richard, and two blonde-haired little boys. Eliza and her family were actually members of one of our sister churches, Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And it is hard to imagine what that church is going through right now as they grieve the loss of, of this friend, of this sister in Christ, but also as they try to figure out how to respond to this horrendous injustice, this awful crime. You know, as a pastor, when I hear stories like this, I can't help but think to myself, if I were the pastor of that church, how would I seek to shepherd the flock? How would I seek to counsel them from God's word? You know, I'm curious if you would raise your hand this morning. I'm curious how many of you in the past year have lost a loved one, 
uh, or an acquaintance who has died. I'm curious, how many of you have, have had a loved one or acquaintance who has died? If you don't have your hand raised now, I'm guessing if we ask this question next year, you'd probably have your hand raised. You see, the reality is that death happens. We don't like talking about death. I don't like talking about the death. We like to ignore the reality of death, but the truth is death is all around us. You know, David is known, again, as a man after God's own heart. And in this chapter, how he responds to the death of Saul and of Jonathan and of many of Israel shows us how a man and a woman after God's own heart should respond to death. Whether it be the death of a best friend or even an enemy, a death of a believer or an unbeliever, a death by disease or a death by murder. This shows us how we as a people after God's own heart should respond to death. There are three main things we're gonna glean from this passage as how men and women after God's own heart should respond to death. The first is this, that we should seek the justice of the dead. Look at verse one and two with me. Actually, we'll read further than that. Verse one, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Obviously, he knew who David was, that David was this fierce warrior who was to be the next king of Israel. Verse three, David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul, who is the anointed king of Israel and his son, Jonathan, who is David's very, very best friend are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know? How do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gaboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered him, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Again, the arch enemies of the Israelites. Verse nine. And he, Saul, said to me, the Amalekite, stand behind me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside, beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. If you remember from last week, First uh, Samuel Chapter 31 simply tells us that Saul took his own life by falling on his sword. Commentators uh, disagree on whether this young man's report was true or not true. Uh, he could have been lying. He could have said that he took the life of King Saul because he believed it would give him favor with the new king, King David. And so he could simply have said, yes, I killed him and brought his crown and his armlet to David to get rewarded for taking out Saul. You see, Saul, again, was hunting David down. Saul was the one who was standing in the way of David becoming king. And so maybe this Amorite simply thought that if he told David that he killed him, that he would get some sort of prize for that. Most of the commentators believe that. 
Other commentators believe this guy is telling the truth, that he's simply filling in some of the details that were not included in the last chapter. I actually lean towards the second view, um, but really it's nothing worth starting a new denomination over. And, uh, but, but I do think this, man, this Amalekite helped finish off Saul. Either way, either way, this man confessed to David that he had killed the anointed king of Israel. And remember, if you know the story, uh, King Saul is hunting David. And on, on two different times, David has the opportunity to kill King Saul. And I think none of us would blame him as he's defending his life, as this man is seeking to kill him. And yet David refuses to do that because Saul is the anointed king of Israel, anointed by the Lord God himself. Furthermore, last chapter, if you remember, Saul asks his armor bearer to strike him with his sword to put him to death. And the armor bearer refuses to do it out of fear of the Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. And so here we have this Amalekite, you know, saying, I have killed the king of Israel, expecting some reward, expecting David to, to respond with celebration. But see how David responds here in verse 11 and 12. It says, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. We'll return here to verse 11 and 12 in the next point. But for now, I, I want you to notice the timing. Uh, that, that David gets a report that Saul has died, that Jonathan has died, and they go into a time of mourning and grieving, and they wept, it says, until the evening. And so this, what happens in verse 13, takes place several hours later, maybe even the next day. And I want you to see that timing in this, okay? Verse 13, and David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Again, if you know the story of Saul, you know that David and his sword bearer had opportunities to kill the Lord's anointed, but refused to do so. And yet here this, this Ammonite does it so flippantly and so easily. He even confesses to it. Verse 15 continues and says, and David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Notice here, and I think this is very important that when David first receives news of Saul's death and of Jonathan's death, he does not pull out his sword and immediately strike the man dead. He's not responding out of simple anger and, 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 and injustice, but rather he interrogates the man. He hears the confession of the man that he has put the Lord's anointed to the death. And so David seeks justice for the dead. He even declares his ruling saying, your own mouth has testified against you. I have killed the Lord's anointed. David, as the new king of Israel, in his first action as king, seeks justice for the murder of King Saul. There are a lot of points of application to this, and most of them are pretty controversial, to be honest with you. But the first thing is this, is that putting someone to death, this is the first point, putting someone to death is not always murder. 
okay? Killing someone and murder are not always the same thing. If you murder someone, you have killed someone. But if you've killed someone, you've not always murdered someone. For example, if you are seeking to preserve your life, if you're attacked, or the life of a loved one or another, killing another person in self-defense is not murder. Even if someone has taken the life of a loved one and you go to pursue vengeance against them, that would be murder because it's not in self-defense. God does not give us individuals the right to put someone to death. That is what this Amalekite did and that was considered murder. With that said, God does give governing authorities the right to put someone to death. In the Old Testament, God is establishing the civil laws of the nation of Israel, and he says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Numbers 35, 16 says it this way. It says, but if he struck him down with an iron object like a sword so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Going to the New Testament, Romans chapter 13 says of governing officials, it says, if you do wrong, be afraid for the governing officials does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The governing authorities have been given the authority by God to take life for the sake of justice. Now with that said, I will tell you uh, that I personally wrestle with the death penalty in many ways in America, not because I think it is wrong or immoral for governing officials to execute someone who has committed murder, but because I am concerned that many times our judicial system does not always get it right, that there's not enough evidence, that the poor has lesser representation than the rich. And so it concerns me. But with that being said, God has given to the governing authorities the sword to execute his justice on those who have committed murder. This Amalekite has committed murder. He confessed to it. And David was enacting justice through a judicial process according to his position as the new king. The second point of application, which is probably maybe not as controversial, is that what we learn in this passage is that euthanasia is murder. Uh, according to the Ammonites, Saul was suffering, and so Saul asked this Ammonite to end his life. Uh, this could be considered a mercy killing, and that's what euthanasia is. Euthanasia is something where you end someone's suffering and someone's life by their request. Dr. Dr. Jack Kevorkian is famous for this and a proponent of it. And, and I would say, like, I get it. I kind of understand what they're saying. If you see someone suffering, part of you says, maybe we should just end it and let them go to heaven, Right? But according to this passage, euthanasia is murder. It is punishable by death. I actually have an extended family member who is getting up there in age and he lives a, an interesting lifestyle. I'll just say that. I can't give too much details away. But, but I've asked him, I said, what, what's going to happen when you can't live this lifestyle anymore? What are you going to do? And he's like, well, I can't really afford assisted living, at least not a good assisted living. I don't want to drain the bank account of my children to put me in assisted living. And so I'm just going to drive to a state where they can medically end my life. And I'm going to do that. You may not know this, but there are 10 states in the U.S. where you can medically end your life, have a medically assisted death. This prohibition against euthanasia does not mean we need to artificially prolong life, such as keeping someone on life support, especially when there is little to no hope of recovery. But here's the thing. You can put a suffering dog out of its misery, but people are not dogs. 
People are made in the image of God. God has brought us into the world and it is up to God to take us out of the world. It is God's right to say when our life begins and when our life ends. It's not our choice, it is his. Back on point here, which is that we are to seek the justice of the dead. You know, there are people in our congregation who have had family members and friends that are, have been murdered. And while we are called to forgive the murders, just as Christ did on the cross when he prayed for their forgiveness of those who were murdering him, we can still seek justice. Forgiveness and justice are not opposed to one another. You can forgive and extend mercy, but you can also forgive and seek justice. I'm assuming this is what the family of Eliza Fletcher will do. And so how do we as men and women after God's own heart respond to someone's death, maybe even their murder? It's not by taking vengeance on our own, but by forgiving those who have committed the murder and seeking justice through the means that God has appointed, which is the governing authorities that he has put over us. That's the first way we respond to the death of someone. The second way is to mourn the loss of the death. This is after David uh, has confirmation of Saul and Jonathan's death before the execution of the man who murdered Saul. Verse 11 and 12 says, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Notice here in this passage, it says David and all the men. It does not mention the women. It doesn't mean the women weren't included, but it's emphasizing how the men respond. And the men respond with weeping, with grieving. You know, Christian men are often great at minimizing the tragedy of death. We will quote Bible verses like, life is a vapor or to die is gain. And while those things are true, it is simultaneously true that death is alien to this world, that it is devastating, a devastating foreign intruder. It is the enemy of God. Even God himself weeps over death. If you look at the shortest English verse in the Bible. It is John eleven thirty five, 35, which simply says, Jesus wept. The context is that his good friend, Lazarus, has died. Jesus is going. Jesus knows. He knows. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows the story is going to end in triumph. And yet he is, he is grieved by the reality of death. And Jesus stops and Jesus weeps over Lazarus. So much so that they said, look how Jesus loved this man. In Matthew 5, 4, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What that tells us is for those who choose to mourn the death of a loved one or an acquaintance, it will stir the comfort of God through his Holy Spirit to minister to you. Now the question is, how should we mourn? And there's all sorts of ways, but we see how David mourns here. Verse 17 says, and David lamented with his lamentations over Saul and Jonathan his son. So let, before we move on, let me distinguish here the difference between mourning and lamenting. Mourning is having a deep sorrow in your soul. It is a sadness. Lamenting is the expression of that sorrow, okay? So it could be weeping, it could be fasting, it could be tearing of clothes, if that's the cultural norm. In some ways, lamenting happens when the body and the brain join the heart in its grief. In this case, David 
laments by writing out a lamentation, not only for himself, but for the whole nation of Israel to participate and to lament over the death of their first king and his son, Jonathan. Verse 17 continues, says, and David lamented with his, this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. That would have been a national book where they would have had recordings. We don't have that book, but they would have been familiar with it. He said, verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Talking about the first king of Israel and his son and their military. Verse 20, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. These are Philistine cities. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Paul, Saul did not, sorry, excuse me, David did not want the Philistines to celebrate the death of their first king any more than they already have. Verse 21, says, you mountains of Geboah, let there be no dew or rain upon them, nor fields of offering, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Evidently in that day, they anointed their shields with oil or put oil on them. So when they came against the military, the sun would, would glisten off of them and, and show kind of an imposing force upon them. Uh, but here what we see is that David, David, David kind of, uh, he sets aside Mount Geboa as a place of, of remembrance, a place of grieving. If you think about the, the establishment or the place where 9-11 happened, there's, there's a memorial there. That's what he's doing in this, in this process, a place of national grieving. Verse 22, he says, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty. David's word choice here is very interesting. If I was talking about the Old Testament and I mentioned blood and slain and fat, what would probably come to your mind was a sacrificial offering made to God. And I think David is using this language to say that Saul and Jonathan's life was a sacrificial offering to God. And their sacrificial offering was not in vain for the Lord had blessed their efforts for 40 years, provided them with great victories and provision for the people of God through them. Again, here you see David lamenting the dead. Not only that, but encouraging the nation to lament and then writing it down so that they could lament together year after year after year over the death of Saul and Jonathan and the, and, and the, and the, and the victory over Israel's army. You know, a common mistake that I also often hear from Christians is they think that everyone should grieve and everyone should lament in the same way and at the same pace that they do. I've heard people say, you know what? I've gotten over that. I'm not sure why so-and-so hasn't got over that death yet. I, I grieved it. I lamented it. I've moved on. Why have they not done that yet? But here's the thing. All of us lament differently and all of us lament with different timing. The reality is, Lamenting is often not like a train horn and that fades into the distance. It's more like a bell in which it will ring loud and there will be a lot of grieving and lamenting and then there will be some silence and then it will ring again and there'll be grieving and lamenting and then there'll be silence and then there'll be a ring and it'll be grieving and lamenting. You know, I think of those in our church who have lost, uh, lost children at a young age. Uh, there, there are many of you here, more than you might think. And every, every birthday... Every anniversary of the death of that child, uh, when, when the favorite meal comes out, when a certain sung 
song comes on. There is the ring of the bell and there is grieving and lamenting time and time again. And this is appropriate for the people of God. This is appropriate for people who have a heart after God, who know that death is not the way it is supposed to be. We are called to grieve. We are called to lament. But we must not do it without any hope at all. First Thessalonians chapter four puts it this way. I think it's very helpful. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, meaning dead, that you may not grieve. It does not stop there. That's very important. It says that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Should we grieve? Yes. Should we mourn? Yes. But we also must do so with knowing of the reality of heaven. We must not despair. We must not lose hope because that denies the reality of heaven and the reality that God is in control of all things, even the worst things for our good and for his glory. And so how do we respond to death? of another person as, as a man and woman after God's own heart. Well, we should seek the justice of the dead. We should mourn and grieve and lament over the loss of the dead. But finally, we should honor the life of the dead. Verse 22 says, From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Again, honoring their military service. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan beloved and lovely in life and in death. They were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. This is such an interesting statement because Saul and Jonathan were divided in their view of David. Jonathan loved David. Saul hated David. So they were divided. But what David is doing here is that he is honoring He's honoring both of these men. You know, Jonathan was his very best friend. Uh, Saul, in some ways, was his very greatest enemy who was trying to kill him. And yet he has sought to honor the dead, whether they were his best friend or his enemy. Verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Israel, who clothed you luxurious in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold under, uh, on, your, on your apparel. David knows that even under the kingship of Saul, which was corrupt in many ways. The Lord has provided for Israel through him. And so he seeks to honor Saul for his role in that. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. David and Jonathan had a very close friendship, a once-in-a-lifetime friendship. It was a kindred spirit. It's, I don't know if you ever had, but someone that you just love to be around, someone that makes your life fuller when they're around you. 1 Samuel 18, 1 says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. This is evident because Jonathan rescued David from the, from the murder of his father on multiple occasions. And, and Jonathan, who was the heir apparent to the throne, said, no, the throne belongs to you, David. You are the next anointed king of Israel. Jonathan and David loved each other deeply. And this type of male friendship is very uncomfortable for many people today. As a matter of fact, it is so awkward that many have twisted Jonathan and David's friendship into a homoerotic relationship. But notice, David calls Jonathan my brother, not my lover. David says, 
You love to be what's extraordinary, surpassing, not replacing, but surpassing the love of women. David was married to Jonathan's sister. Men of Jacob's Well Church, we need not be ashamed of intimate, loving relationships with other men. These relationships are a gift from the Lord given to us to be a blessing to help us grow in our relationship with Christ. If you've been here a while, you know my best friend from seminary is a guy named Stephen Jones. Stephen is an ordained minister serving in England, and he is married with three kids, and he is a counselor over there. And we correspond periodically, and in one recent correspondence, I said, hey, give yourself a Jackson hug. And Stephen responded back with this picture right here. So he took that picture, and he sent it to me. And I responded back to him. I said, that is 51% awesome, 49% creepy. And, uh, and he responded back and he said, my percentages are really improving. <laughs> um, uh, Stephen recently sent me an email saying, hey, I've decided that I need to see you in person in the next six months. And so Stephen is going to come and he's going to be our men's retreat speaker this year in March, which I'm very excited about. And when I, when I see Stephen at the airport, when I pick Stephen up at the airport, I'm going to give it Stephen a, a hug. And it's going to be a hug that is awkwardly long for the people around us. Because I love Stephen. I mean, he's, he's my kindred spirit. He's one of my, my favorite people in the whole world. This type of male friendship is so uncomfortable for the world around us that they can only assume one perverted thing, which is completely untrue. In the kingdom of God, these friendships are a sweet gift from the Lord. And so let me ask you, are you pursuing friendships like this? Through, through community group, through a triad, through grabbing coffee with someone on a regular basis, someone who knows you and loves you and cares for you and will tell you the gospel of grace over you again and again and again, someone who will confront you and share with you and you can share with them. These are a gift from God to help us see the love of God, but also grow in the love of Christ. Let me encourage you to pursue friendships like this. Finally, we get to verse 27, a summary statement. It says, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Again, notice in these verses, uh, Saul does, uh, sorry, David does not take an opportunity to talk about how awful Saul was and how wonderful Jonathan was. Whether they were his enemy or his friend, David honored the life of the dead. Let me end with this. At Eliza Fletcher's funeral last week, Pastor George Robertson said, I don't know why God allowed Liz to die. I don't know, you don't know either. The, but the Bible does answer this question. Is the God who allows evil to persist love us? The answer to that question is clearly yes. How can this be? How can we look at the evil in this world and still say our God is a God of love? Because only this God chose to solve the problem by becoming a victim to that evil himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to become a victim of evil, to die under its curse. For God to lose his only son in order to bring us hope and to cure evil and bring it to an end once and for all someday. For God says, I will cure your evil by entering into it, dying in the place of sinners, rising in victory over it, and coming again that great day. And when he talks about that great day, Pastor 
Robertson goes on to remind the congregation of how they had went through the book of Revelation. And while it is filled with battles between good and evil and the depravity of man is on full display, what the book of Revelation tells us is that this suffering is momentary and in the end, Jesus wins. Revelation 21.4 leaves us with this great hope that when Jesus returns, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Friends, you have an opportunity to do something in this life that you will not be able to do in heaven. You will not be able to do this in heaven, but in this life, we can grieve and we can lament and we can mourn because in the world to come, there will be no need for that. Because in the world to come, there will be no more death or pain or crying or sorrow or mourning. This is our hope and the hope of King David. For even as King David sought justice for the dead, even as he grieved and mourned and lamented for the dead, even as he honored the life of the dead, King David also wrote a song about going through the shadow of death. And he ends it by saying this. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then he declares, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Lord, this is a topic that we often feel uncomfortable with, that we often don't like to talk about. We don't like thinking about death, God, but, but we know that it's coming to all of us. So we know it's coming to those that, 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 love, that, that love us, that we love, Lord. And, and God, we need to know how do we engage? How do we engage when, when someone that we love dies, Lord? And so God, thank you for this passage and other passages in the scripture. God, I thank you that you do not shy away from this topic like we tend to do, but you instruct us and you comfort us and show us how we should respond to the death of a loved one. Lord, as we turn to your table, we're reminded of the death of your son we are reminded that it was not just in any way, shape, or form, that he was the only one in the world to ever live who did not deserve death. Lord, we are reminded, we are reminded, Lord, of, of the grieving and lamenting and the mourning of the disciples and, and of us and, and remembering that death of our King. And yet, God, we come this morning to receive this sacrament as you have instituted to honor him, to, to show that, that we come to worship not a king that is dead, but a king that is alive, a king that will return again and will take away all death, all mourning and all pain. And so we come to this meal as an appetizer of the feast that we will have in heaven together as we celebrate a world where everything is made right again. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.